0: Hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen, I'm a barrister at and Essex Chambers, specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm very pleased to be joined today in, I'm afraid, still a slightly cold-ridden shed um, by Dr. Janet Weston. Um, anybody who's heard one of these before knows I much prefer the person I'm speaking to to introduce themselves. So Janet, over to you, please introduce yourself.
1: Yes, thank you very much. And thank you for having me. Um, So for the past uh, 10 years or so, I've been an academic historian. Um, My area of focus is histories of health and illness in modern Britain. Um, And I'm based at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, um, which has a centre for history in public health. So I um, generally study um, the history of public health, Um, broadly speaking, but I do have a particular interest in mental health, uh, mental illness, um, mental impairment, and how those um, states or conditions or ways of being have interacted with um, the law, the medical profession, and society in general um, over the 20th century. And I suppose it's also worth saying that before coming to academia, um, I worked for nearly 10 years in the charity sector, um, mostly dealing with gifts that were left in people's wills to charities. Mm -hmm. And that was um, how I first encountered uh, the Court of Protection, um, as it is today uh, in the context of um, testamentary capacity and statutory wills.
0: interesting. Okay. So, the reason i've got you into the the show today is to talk about this wonderful book you've just published but it's i know it's part of a kind of a bigger project so i wonder if you could just sort of walk us through a little bit about the project and then we can get into the book itself
1: yeah so this uh this project which was very generously funded by the Wellcome trust um started out as a sort of big history of uh mental capacity law Um, The original aim was to look at uh, England and Wales and Scotland and Ireland. Um, For uh, very practical reasons, um, Scotland and Ireland both had to sort of fall away, although I do have a hope of returning to them um, one day and sort of looking uh, at the comparison much more. Um, But yes, the project was uh, uh, initially a sort of big history of uh, mental capacity law um across uh, Britain and Ireland over the 20th century it's sort of big sweep um of what exactly had been going on over that kind of understudied period
0: yeah and so I mean I'm actually I should say I really do hope you do manage to get back to Scotland because the just the comparisons between them in such different legal traditions such a different and kind of societal tradition as well. I mean, I re- we really notice now with the way in which the law law operates in Scotland versus the way the law operates in England, it's coming from some very deep-rooted different places. So if I can encourage you to return, <laughs> it would be fantastic. But so as part, so we had this big sort of sweeper project and then you started zeroing in on, it, it sounds like you started zeroing in on, as it were, specific people, specific parts of people's lives. Can you just sort of help us with how you got into that?
1: Uh, yes, it was very much um, sort of prompted by what I was encountering in the archives. There's a really um, wonderful archival collection in the National Archives in in Kew in London for anybody who's interested, uh, which is a, a sort of I think it's supposed to be about a 2% sample of case files from the old Court of Protection, Um, And also a similar sort of sample from the official solicitor's office. Um, So there's a really wonderful, uh, absolutely fascinating um, assortment of case files. And as I was um, going through those, uh, initially in a very kind of random just sort of um, dipping in to see what was there to get a feeling for them. I. I came across one file in particular, which uh, which was just uh, captivating, mm-hmm. and sort of took the project in a whole different direction, um, and that is very much what the book ended up uh, focusing on in many respects.
0: I, 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 want to talk, I want to talk about the the, the person in question, but just for people who don't know, I mean, you, you, we, we, a couple of times you said the kind of old court protection versus a new court protection. Can you just sort of orient people in time and space what you're talking about is something quite in a way quite in lots of ways very different to the thing which people might now be vaguely familiar with so what, what was the old court of protection
1: yeah yeah so the old court of protection um was uh, at the beginning of the 20th century it was uh, generally called the lunacy office or the office of the master in lunacy Um, and it had been around in in one form or another for centuries really Um, but um it dealt with very, very small numbers of people who tended to be categorised as either, and I feel like I have to do the little bunny, you know, bunny ears. They were categorised as yeah, either, no, either lunatics.
0: Funny, very <laughs> aware the language is about to arrive, which is deeply challenging for modern ears.
1: Yeah, so yes. yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so the words used were uh, lunatics or idiots. Um, and the lunacy office would uh, uh, intervene. Um, throughout the 19th century through a mechanism uh, known as an inquisition. Um, And there are lots of other, um, there's a lot of other exciting terminology uh, and procedure around it. Um, But it would uh, intervene essentially to determine whether people were able to look after themselves or uh, their finances. And if not, then it would put somebody else in charge of one or both of those aspects. Um, in the early 20th century, that office um, started to undergo a very dramatic change. Um, it started to grow very, very rapidly, uh, both in terms of the staffing and also the caseload um, that was coming to its attention. Um, and there were a lot of procedural changes as well, which meant that it was no longer just dealing with a very small number of very, very wealthy people, which really had been its uh, main uh, client base, I suppose, uh, in the 19th century and earlier. It started to deal with uh, a much wider range of people, including uh, people of really very modest means, Um, but it uh, really did focus 99.9% of the time on uh, financial decision-making over the 20th century, over most of the 20th century.
0: Uh, why Why was there suddenly, I mean, was there a sudden massive increase in the number of people with the sort of conditions which were felt to justify intervention? Or I mean, why did there suddenly, suddenly be this, you know, from a very small number, suddenly be so much greater a kind of reach of the office or the court?
1: Mm, that's a really interesting question. And there are probably quite a few different reasons that uh, that all contributed. There was an important um, uh, statutory change in the late 19th century. Um, which made the procedure for contacting um, the court and sort of going through this whole process much, much simpler, quicker, cheaper, uh, and more private, because it had been in the 19th century, there had been juries involved in evaluating um, uh, capacity. Um, There was often a lot of journalists uh, looking in and reporting on those. So um there are a lot of reasons why it wasn't a first port of call uh for for most people but as it became um cheaper more discreet um more and more people started to hear about it i think there is a bit of a snowball effect um there was also very um sort of a very uh, what looked like a very small tweak um to the law that governed its operation in the late 19th century which actually opened the doors for the um for the office to uh think much more broadly really about the kinds of states of mind that uh might lead people to struggle to uh make their own decisions or to look after themselves. Um so it was no longer sort of um restricted to to those terms you know lunatics and idiots it could it could think much more broadly. Um, And that's connected to changes uh, in wider society and in medicine um, in terms of our understandings of mental illness um, and mental impairment. So I think in in sort of wider society, um, people were starting to think about mental illness in much uh, sort of acknowledging much, much more of a gray area, I suppose, um, rather than just, um, you know, sane or lunatic one or the other.
0: Yeah. I I have to say one of the things i find most interesting in the book was the fact that Miss Alexander, who we're going to talk about in a second, the way in which she was thought about from a perspective which, well, everyone always says, you know, there's a terrible problem with medicalizing the concept of mental capacity. But from my reading of the book, it was so interesting the way in which Miss Alexander, in a way, wasn't thought about that at all. Or there seemed to be a much broader understanding. I just wondered... know from from digging into her story and digging into you know how she was thought to require assistance you know what your thoughts were about that
1: Mm, yeah that's really interesting when i when i started the project one of the main um strands one of the main areas of interest was to look at um what what this uh sort of of branch of law might say about medical understandings uh, of the mind but in fact there, there very often was very little medical involvement. Technically, there always had to be um, some kind of medical evidence, some kind of medical statement. But um, very often, that was that was quite formulaic. That was very sort of cursory. Um, and yes, in this particular case, uh, it did seem that it was it was. It was treated as a, a tick box sort of exercise. It wasn't really the medical um, assessment, the medical opinion wasn't really um, the the essence of the decision. Um, there was, um, I think, a much more kind of uh, common sense almost approach. There was a belief amongst the people in the in the old court of protection that, um, you know, anybody, any sensible person should be able to, uh, with, with some, you know, appropriate um, expertise, such as the people in the health court of protection would have, you didn't need a medical training. Just anybody with that experience could really go and um, sort of take in uh, an individual and in their living situation and, and make a, a sensible judgment about uh, whether they had capacity or not. So it did really feel as though medicine was sidelined um, to a large extent for um, at least a good chunk of that sort of middle 20th century.
0: And I really want people to read the book because of the way it's written is almost like a detective novel. So I don't want to give away too much about the story. But but what was it about Miss Alexander's situation when you said you were reading, you were doing the sampling, and then you came across this story which kind of captivated you and you know moved things in very different what, what was it about it that that when you came across it which made you go, gosh?
1: Yeah, it was um Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it felt like such a a find when I came across it. It was um, very, very different to the majority of files, um, which tended to be, I mean, just physically quite small. Uh, Miss Alexander's files were huge and numerous. Um, And her situation was very, very different in that she was living independently at home. Whereas most people uh, did, they were either in hospital um, or they were at home, but receiving, you know, very intensive um, care and support already. Um, And the really enticing thing to start off with was that uh, only two files about her were open for public inspection uh, when I first came across them. So the story stopped very, very abruptly um, about 12 months after um, the files began in 1939. They then stopped in 1940. And I was left um, absolutely baffled about what on earth was going on, about why... Anybody had thought to, to contact the court of protection about this individual who was just, you know, quietly living her life perfectly happily, it seemed to me. Um, and then why on earth uh, the court had made the decision that she was incapable? It it didn't make any sense from what I found in those first files. Um, so it was, you know, an irresistible mystery to pursue. And I guess that does come across with the detective element. Um And luckily, I was able to um, file some Freedom of Information requests to get access to the next 10 files, the next 10 installments of the story. And and reading those uh, really changed my my opinion of uh, what was going on. Um, I kept uh, sort of reassessing my initial assessment, Um, as sort of the years went by, as I um, followed her um, for the next 30 years, as it turned out. Um, And that in of itself made me start thinking about um, just how much um, sort of personal interpretation, how much of my own imagination was involved in, in everything that I was sort of piecing together about her story. Um, so there was a sort of, um, there was, I think, uh, an element of suspense um, in the original files um, and then the happenstance of of um, uh, uh, the delay of not being able to immediately get through to the end and, and find out what happened at the end. I think all contributed to making this story a very appealing one to pursue.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, one of the things I, I really did enjoy about the book was the way in which you were continually kind of reflecting back on you know, am I over Well, not so much over-interpreting, but why am I, you know, the, the information which is coming out, it's not, none of it's directly from her, is it? It's all triangulated from other people. And, you know, you could read some of it very much as, we could read this as, you know, the, the right sort of support in the right sort of way. And in other ways you could read it as, well, you know, this may be very benign to some people, but, you know, is this controlling? And I really thought the way in which one, you know, you kept sort of reflecting on that, uh, and sort of changing your mind, almost. <laughs> no, but I mean, not in a kind of flip-flop way, but in a just, you know, as you found new information, you were then thinking, well, does this, as you say, does this shed a different light on, you know, why they felt there needed to be intervention?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something that that historians sort of um, uh, acknowledge and are sort of aware of, often at the back of their minds, that you know we are dealing with incomplete material. We don't, you know, we can't go and ask the people the questions that we really want the answers to. There's a great deal that's unknown. And, you know, we do have to just um, sort of gather as much information as we possibly can and then make an educated um, guess, really. But um, the, the sort of extent of uncertainty in this story and the extent to which it, it relies on our own kind of personal judgments of you know, best interests and of what, what people want in life, you know what people think matters, um, and not just for themselves, but for people around them, um, it has such an impact on how you um, evaluate these events um, that it felt useful. To really bring that to the foreground and try to give those sort of concrete examples of when, you know, on first reading, I thought something was uh, sort of shocking and inappropriate, but then thinking again, looking at it from another angle, actually, maybe maybe I uh, uh, am uh, projecting an awful lot or maybe I'm misunderstanding because we only have one side of the story. Uh, And maybe there's another um, sort of version of it there that's worth thinking about as well.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting chatting to you today because I think it was either yesterday or the day before there was the the Open Justice Court Protection Project, which is is doing really fascinating and important work on the kind of modern-day court protection. I think think it's their first time they've published an interview with a P, so a person who is at the centre of the proceedings. And it's, you know, it's very interesting to get the perspective of I know because all the other things, even when people are sitting in court, I mean, it was fascinating. You were saying right at the beginning, you know, 19th century inquisition all taking place in public. Actually, that was people dissuading modern day court protection all taking place in public, subject to reporting restrictions. It's so funny that you know the way that the circle comes full circle, mm-hmm. as it were. Um, but it, it, it's you know, everybody else is projecting onto what might be going on in different cases, and, and, and it's just very interesting, you know, almost there's the history and then it's sort of it's almost happening right here right now again you know in terms of thinking about all the gaps we might have and it may not just be historical gaps because we might not even be able to go and ask the person now you know there may be restrictions on our ability to ask the person say and I'm just wondering I mean I definitely uh, as I said in my review this the, the book could definitely very frequently be used by for instance social workers trying to do Kind of a focus group on how do we think about this situation how would we intervene you know would we intervene would we not intervene and I'll just be really interested in your views on as well what you think your book can tell us about how we think about capacity matters now it's a sort of big question big final mm. question but if you've got any thoughts on because I, I really don't think this is I a. Mean, it's a fantastically interesting piece of historical work but I don't think I mean, it would be to make it unduly limited to say it's as it were just a historical work I think it's got real things to tell us about you know how we think about the modern court protection how we think about intervention how we think about best interests. but I don't want to project my words onto onto you I'd like to, I'd really like to hear what your, your thoughts are.
1: Yes that is a huge question and I mean as I was working on it I you know I was aware of um of much more contemporary cases where there were quite interesting parallels, but quite reluctant to sort of get too drawn in because, uh, that you know, I know that's not my area of expertise and I'm quite cautious about not, uh, you know, not sort of wading in and um, and being uh, very inaccurate. Um, But I think, I mean, I think... the value does lie in those continuities. Obviously, there has been a huge amount of, of change and the old court of protection is not the same as the new court of protection, although there is a sort of family relationship, I suppose. Um, but really the sort of the the heart of the issues that it was um, dealing with seems to me to be very, very similar. You know, there's, um, uh, there's a lot of sort of... Um, negotiating or um uh, mediating of of family disputes or of disagreements um between people about what the best course of action is um and with this um this case in particular miss alexander's case that that um challenge of trying to figure out what what is um what does best interests mean for a particular person um it's not it's never as simple as you know these these people uh, around her are uh you know awful and abusive and these people are angels and should be placed in charge <laughs> you know it's it's pretty much always more complicated than that it's very difficult to uh, from an outside perspective to understand the nature of human relationships and what people are thinking and feeling and what is going to work out best um And so I think having that sort of um, the benefit of that slight historical distance that enables us to um, think in concrete terms, because these were these are real cases, these were real people, but um, sort of at a slightly safe distance to to reflect on what all of those issues and and concepts mean and how we feel about them. yeah, I would. I would love it if that is something useful for um, contemporary practitioners that could come out of the book. Yeah,
0: no, well, I, I mean, I really, I really needed to. I think it it does because I think it's, you know, as you, I mean, these are human dilemmas which are consistent across time. They might be framed in different language. I mean, luckily, by the time you're writing of the period you write about, some of the language is slightly less awful than the, the earlier language but you know dilemmas which exist across time and you're trying to think about and people using slightly different tools but it's and as it, I, I, I do think that point about you've got that little one remove helps you maybe have that little bit of distance but then to come back and go well actually with that distance then think about the case I'm grappling with right now
1: but yeah yeah Yeah,
0: no, well, I think I've managed, we managed not to give away any spoilers because I think it's a detective novel. and it's a detective novel about a real person, must forget that, but it's a detective novel about a real person, which has the most interesting series of twists and turns. So I didn't want to give any away and I think you've done brilliantly managing not to give any (laughs) away. So Janet, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much. And can I mention very quickly that the book is free to download um, so if anybody does want to to read it, um, do just download it as a PDF. You don't have to pay the inflated academic price.
0: <laughs> thank you very much. and I thank you for flagging that. And I will put the link on the on the page associated with this video. So thank, Brilliant. You. Thanks, thank you very
1: much, Alex.